You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Tom, and I'm one of the leaders here at Hope Church. And this morning, I'm going to be bringing our First Corinthians uh, series to the half way point, kind of the half-time point. We've been through a grueling first half uh, with some great uh, messages digging into this book together. Before that, let me remind you, um, we've got a new life group term starting uh, in January, and we would love it if you could submit your life group proposals to us no later than the 10th of December. So you haven't got long. So if you're a member of the church here, please do submit a proposal um, if you feel stirred to do that, and we would love to consider that. So by the 10th of December, you need to get that in. Uh, if you go on our, um, our weekly e-news, if you receive that, then there's a link in there where you can um, write to Tim Virgo, um, get those proposals in, and we'll uh, love to consider them. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, could you turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 10? And we're going to read just one verse today from chapter 10, but I will be diving back uh, into the earlier part of the chapter as we go through written by Paul the Apostle to a church in Corinth in Greece that he had um, started. So we're about 20 years after Jesus had walked on the earth, and uh, he's been writing to the church about a number of things. And this is what he says in chapter 10 and verse 31. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This exhortation comes at the end of a chapter that has a lot to say about the matter of worship. And that's what I want to speak about today. Last week we heard Tim's excellent message about running the race. Sometimes it requires perseverance through hard times. I would encourage you to listen to it. I was preaching elsewhere last week. I managed to catch up online uh, in the week and it was so encouraging. Sometimes we're running this race in life and it is requiring perseverance. It requires discipline. It requires self-control. It requires that we fix our eyes on Jesus um, who has run ahead of us. And Tim ventured a little into chapter 10, where Paul reminds the church of the story of the Exodus, how the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt, and for a time they were wandering in the desert. And he reminds them of how they actually, although they were receiving miraculous provision from God, although they had just seen him do something incredible, they started to grumble. And they started to think, well, maybe it would have been better for us had we stayed in Egypt. Maybe we might go back there. Because we had, at least we had this in Egypt, at least we had that. And not only did they grumble, we see that also uh, when Moses was up the mountain talking to God, they actually, whilst he was up there thinking he's taking quite a long time up there, they started to make idols for themselves. They made uh, a golden calf and they started worshipping. And Paul is saying here in, in the whole of this chapter that the heart issue in our lives is really who or what we worship. And I want to speak a little bit about worship today um, because some of us have a wrong understanding of worship. You might, when you think of the word worship, you might simply think that worship is what we've just done, where we've had a time of singing for 30 or 35 minutes. You might think of uh, being in your car, listening to the latest uh, Hillsong CD and at the traffic lights doing like a little air drum solo. Um, You might think that's worship. You're squeezing your hands and squeezing your eyes tight and singing out to God that that is worship. You might have a number of different pictures about what worship is. But if that is what your understanding of worship is, then I'm here to tell you this morning that it's not a complete understanding of worship. 
And if you have that as your understanding of worship, then you are in danger of falling into the same trap that the people of Israel fell into. And Paul says here to the Corinthians, you're sensible people. He's writing to sensible people. He says, uh, I think in verse 15, I'm writing to sensible people here. We're sensible. We might think, well, I'm quite a sensible person. I'm not at any point going to end up you know, making a, a, you know, some sort of golden calf and start well, I'm not in danger of that. But Paul's saying, he, you're sensible people. You're in danger that you might fall into a trap here. And we can all do this. We can all think that worship is simply an experience. It's an event. Sometimes on Tuesdays, we, a few of us get together and we plan the next Sunday. We might review the previous Sunday and we might think, well, how was the worship? How, what were, the, were the song choices good? And all that kind of stuff. And, and there's a danger that actually we might think, well, worship is just that 35 minutes in, in a service. But if we think that worship is just an experience, then we misunderstand it and we run the risk of falling into a trap uh, set by our enemy, the devil. The Israelite people were sensible people. They had been dramatically set free, dramatically rescued, and they knew of not just God's existence, but his power as well and his provision. And yet they fell into some messy stuff. So I want to to pull out three things about worship that we need to establish, we need to understand, we need to remind ourselves of, and it will help us to not fall into these traps. The first thing that I want to say this morning is that we were all made to worship. We were made to worship. I wonder if you ever considered why on earth did God make it all? You might not believe in God. Just come with me for a minute or two on this. If God exists, why on earth did he make it all? Why, why, did, he, why did he do it? Why did he bother? What was his motivation? Why the sheer amount of galaxies? that we, Some of the images we're going to see. Why, why, these, why these galaxies? Why millions of stars and planets and all that might or might not be in them? Why the variety? Why 8.7 million species of creatures on this planet alone? Why the red-lipped batfish? Why the mantis shrimp? This guy's incredible. Why the shoe bill with a massive bill looking like a shoe? Why the acarpi who's quite confused as to whether or not he's a zebra or some sort of anteater or a cow? I don't know what he thinks he is, but why the acarpi? Why thousands of islands? Why, why you and I? Why did God make it all? What was the motive behind it? Well, the Bible makes it very clear in a number of different places, that he made it all for himself. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that all things exist by him and for him. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So when it says for him, what does it mean? It means... It was created for his glory, that he would be glorified. It means that everything that has been made has been created to make God look glorious. Not to dress him up to somehow make him look glorious, but actually to show him to be as glorious as he really is. Another way of of saying that something glorifies God is saying something magnifies God. So we're going to come to the Christmas story in the coming weeks. And when Mary hears of uh, the, the miracle that God's going to do through her, She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It magnifies the Lord. It might say in your translation, it glorifies the Lord. But the two things are very, very much the same here. There's two kinds of magnifying. There's there's microscope 
magnifying and there's telescope magnifying. One thing uh, makes a small thing look bigger than it is. So when you look through a microscope, it makes a small thing look bigger than it is. And a telescope makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. So that's what it means to magnify God, to make him look as big as he really is and as glorious as he really is. So all of creation, millions of stars and planets and all that is in them, that is a comparatively small thing compared to God. But when we consider it, it begins to make God look as big as he really is. All of creation is for God. It's for his glory and his praise. And the grace, the salvation story that many of us have known uh, in our lives, many of us who have been rescued by Jesus, it's all for his glory. It's all for the praise of his glory, we see in Ephesians. It's all for the praise of his glory and grace. We are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. That's really good news, isn't it? It's really good news for a generation that is really self-obsessed. We're probably one of the most narcissistic generations there has ever been. And it's really good news that we are not the center of the universe. We're, most, we're one of the most self-obsessed generations, but simultaneously one of the most depressed generations. Now, I'm not saying that all depression is linked to self-obsession, but I think there's something in that, that we're, as, a, as a society, particularly in the West, we're so self-obsessed, but we're simultaneously one of the most depressed You know what? You are not made to be satisfied by yourself or fascinated by yourself. You are not made to be satisfied by people speaking well of you. You are made to worship. God has created you to worship him, to find him fascinating, to find him all-satisfying, to find him all-consuming. There is something way better than yourself to be consumed with. That's really good news. When we become self-obsessed, we become very easily disappointed, don't we? Because we were never meant to be centered around ourselves. Now, God is God-centered. God is God-centered. We've sung about his love this morning for us, which is true and glorious. But ultimately, God is God-centered. And that's perfectly good and perfectly righteous of him. Why is it right for God to seek his glory, but wrong for us to seek our glory? How how does God get away with it? How is it it okay for him to seek glory? his own glory. Well, God is is righteous to esteem most highly the thing that is most valuable in the universe. So it's right to esteem highly the things that are most valuable, right? And God is right to esteem most highly the thing that is most valuable in the whole universe, and that is himself. For God to be righteous, he must love himself with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what he calls us to do, isn't it? He calls us to love him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. And for him to be righteous, he must love himself with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Otherwise, he would be an idolater. Otherwise, he would be giving supreme devotion to something that does not have supreme value. We're going to come on to idolatry in a little while because that's in this passage. So God must love himself. He must be God-centered. And he calls us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because he's the only one who's worthy of that love, ultimately. He's the one who's worthy of worship. And he's the only one who gives us what really quenches our thirst. I watched a video uh, by Russell Brand this week, who many of you will know, famous really for for drug addiction and for promiscuity. uh, Famous for having, you know, there's been films made about his promiscuity. 
And he's starting on this journey, seemingly, to, we hope and pray to, to finding that there's actually one person who really satisfies, and that is Jesus. But on this video, he says profoundly, I have disabused myself of the idea that the material world will ever give me anything that satisfies. So he's been there and done it. Okay, so if, you want, if, you want to, if you're wondering, well, what, does it, what does it look like to have loads of sexual partners? What does it look like to have all the material possessions I could ever want and the experiences I could ever want? Well, hear it from Russell Brand. I've become disabused of the, materi- of the idea that the material world will ever give me anything that satisfies. This, God, when he's calling us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to center our lives around him, he's calling us to love him and in doing so, that is the only thing that will really satisfy us, to be centered around God. That is the only thing. It's for our good, and it's for his glory. We were made to worship. The second point about worship is this. We're always worshiping. Because we're made to worship, it comes naturally to us. We were born to worship. Usain Bolt, um, the great, probably the greatest athlete of all time, and I don't know if we'll ever see anyone like him in our, in our lifetime, really. A couple of years ago, as he was coming to his retirement from, um, from sprinting, a documentary was made about him called Usain Bolt Born to Run. And uh, it featured him as a very young child sprinting from a very, very young age. It was just, he was made to do it. I mean, he's huge, right? He's got the stride. He, he was made to run. He was born to run. And even though he's retired from uh, sprinting, he's now trying to become a professional footballer because the guy cannot stop running. He cannot, I, can, I can imagine him as a 90-year-old still running because that's what he was made to do. And we cannot stop worshipping because we were born to worship. There was an American writer called David Foster Wallace who died about 10 years ago. He was not a religious person himself, but he said something really profound about worship. He says this, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. That is really profound, isn't it? We are always worshipping. We get to choose what we worship. We will inevitably send to our lives on something to worship, whether we realise it or not. And you might be here this morning and thinking, why on, earth, why on earth are these people raising their hands to a God they cannot see? Why are they worshipping in this way? Let me tell you, you are worshipping something. You are worshipping something, whether you realise it or not. Worship is like a fire hose that has become stuck in the on position. And it's endlessly shooting out 
water with great force. Our worship hose is always on. We must decide where to aim the hose. We must choose to focus our worship on the one who's really worthy of worship. So we're made to worship. We're always worshipping. Final thing on worship is that worship that is not of Jesus is idolatry. This is what this passage suggests when we read chapter 10. The idols of our modern world, they're not necessarily uh, the hand-carved statues of the ancient world. They're not necessarily, you know, golden calves. They're not necessarily the things that the people in Corinth might have been tempted to, um, to give themselves to. But in our self-seeking ways, humans have always come to serve or worship the self-erected idols of power, approval, comfort, security. We're all in danger of this. As I said right at the beginning, sensible people, even people who are very spiritual. The Corinthians were very spiritual. Even people who are great at spotting idols in other people's hearts and lives. Aren't we good at that sometimes? Yeah, I mean, he or she's got a real problem with this. Or he or she's got this, oh man, they need to sort this out in their lives. Even people who are really, really good at spotting other things in other people's lives are susceptible to this. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 10, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. If you think that you've got this sewn up, be careful that pride doesn't set in. Be careful that pride doesn't set in that can lead to idols of power and approval. Before we know it, we can make something other than Jesus the center of our lives. We must ruthlessly inspect our hearts. We must inspect the sin in our hearts for these idols, for the evidence of these idols. Paul says in this chapter, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. He might have had in his mind people literally you know, going to somewhere where idols were being worshipped and legging it out of there. He might have had that in his mind. But certainly for us, it means ruthlessly dealing with things in our hearts where we see that idols have become the center of our lives. Just clearing up the mess won't be enough. You might say, I've got a porn problem, or I've got a promiscuity problem, or I've got an anger problem, or I've got an anxiety problem. And we might do some things to kind of clear out the mess. We might say, I'm going to get accountability software. Or I'm going to get married so I don't sleep around so much. Or I'm going to, I'm going to do this, so I'm going to do that. I'm going, to get, I'm going to medicate myself so that I don't have this issue anymore. But all the while, the hose of our worship could be on something that is not Jesus. We might sort out the kind of presenting issue, but deep down there could well be something that is the center of our affection, the, cent- the thing that we think is going to satisfy us, the thing that we think is going to bring us all that we want in this life, and it's not Jesus. And it's just like chopping the heads off of weeds without getting to the root. They just come back up again. I don't know if you remember, about eight years ago, um, BP, they spilt millions of oil into the sea. Do you remember that? I think it was 4.9 million barrels of oil in the sea. Anyone remember that? And it was at the height of it, it was spewing out tens of thousands, I think almost 100,000 barrels of oil every day into the sea. Now imagine if they had simply just run around as quickly as they could, just mopping up all of the beaches nearby and cleaning down all of the birds and all of that kind of stuff without actually going to the, the actual the root of the issue, which was that this thing was spewing out oil everywhere. It wouldn't have actually done anything except clear up the mess only to return again. And that's so often what we do in our lives. When we acknowledge that there's something going on in our life, we think, well, that's not really honoring to God. That's not worshipful of him. That needs to change. And we think, right, I'm just going to sort out the outside bit. 
I'm going to try and hide it away, or whatever it might be. But actually, there's a root thing there, which is that our worship is not centered on Jesus. There'll only be pain and mess if we just address the outside, but not the root problem. Your sin problem, if you have, um, we all do in some degree, our sin problem is a worship problem. It's where we're putting our trust and our, and our devotion when it's not centered on Jesus. And whatever we worship, unless it's God revealed to us in Jesus, it will only disappoint us and it will abandon us in the end. Or in the words of that guy that we read out from, it will eat us alive. And that, that's, that's the deal. It will eat us alive if we give ourselves to something that is not worship of Jesus. And what's more, we read in, in, in verse 22 of chapter 10, as we do this, we would provoke God to jealousy. God's jealousy isn't sinful jealousy. It's not the same as, as jealousy we may have when we want something that someone else has. God is provoked to jealousy when something that is rightfully his is giving over, given over to something that is not him. So we ruthlessly root out idolatry in our lives. We acknowledge it and we turn from it. We trust that God forgives us and that ultimately he's the only one who's worthy of our trust and worship, the one who's going to satisfy. And when we see Jesus as the ultimate source of satisfaction, the only one worthy of worship, it's then that we will in all things bring glory to him, whether eating or drinking. But we must become expert in how ridiculously good God is. We, we have to. We have to come to see how good he is. We have to remind ourselves of it. And we do that, yes, as we ponder his creation, as we think of all these weird and wacky creatures and beautiful sunsets and walking on the beach and in the forests and all these amazing things that we love to stick on our, our social media. We, yes, that's good. We ponder his artistry. We ponder his beautiful creativity and that's a way in which we we grasp something of the goodness of God we can ponder it in music and in art and as we eat a great meal and we taste it and we can think wow God made all of this so that it would point to him so that it would point us to his goodness we can we can ponder his goodness in those things but the thing that that paints God's goodness to us far more profoundly and powerfully than anything beautiful that we might see in this life or taste in this life. The thing that points us to God's goodness more than anything else is the ugliest scene that has ever been seen in the whole of history. The thing that points us to his goodness is the thing that is the most ugliest thing that has ever been seen. Where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who never gave himself to idols, who never ran after things other than his Father and doing his Father's will, where Jesus Christ, the perfect one, was, was spat upon and was beaten and punched and mocked. And people said, who hit you? Prophesy, who hit you? And made to wear a purple robe so they could mock him and say, well, some king you are, Jesus. I read earlier, just as we were worshipping, actually, in, in, all, in two or three of the gospel accounts, it says they got exhausted from mocking him. They got tired out from mocking him. When they finally got tired of mocking him, they smashed him to a cross. It's nails through his hands and his feet. The ugliest scene in all of history. The perfect one who did not deserve death. The perfect one on the cross. 
on the cross that you and I deserve for our idolatry. On the cross that you and I deserve for, for placing our faith and trust in things that do not satisfy. For the mess that we get ourselves in. The things we run after. That Jesus Christ in this, this hill outside Jerusalem in the, in the early summer of 33 AD. Smashed to a cross. That is where we see the goodness of God displayed most profoundly. That Jesus Christ took our place. The thing that we deserved, he took. And the thing that he deserved, the thing that he deserved more than anyone, the honor from God, relationship with God the Father has been given to us. And two days later, Jesus was risen from the grave. The Father saying, your sacrifice was acceptable to me. Come on home. You've done it. That shows us the goodness of God more than anything else. It shows, us the good, it shows that this God is a God to be trusted. It shows that this is a God who loves us so, so deeply. And he wants us to center our lives around him because it's the very, very best thing for us. It's the very, very, very best thing for us. There's a book in the Bible called Romans. It was written by the same guy, uh, Paul the Apostle. And uh, for the first 12 chapters, Paul is basically splurging out onto the pages before him the goodness of God, the mercies of God. I mean, that doesn't do justice to the writing because it's probably some of the greatest writing that's ever been written. Some of you theologians, you're saying, oh, what are you talking about, splurging? No, he's, li- he's so excited about what God has done for humanity. And he's just saying, yeah, God's done this. Twelve chapters packed full, jam-packed full of the grace and mercy of God. And then he says, so then, in chapter 12, in view of the mercies of God, in view of this incredible mercy, keeping it in your view, keeping it in your mind, in this incredible goodness of God towards you, with this in your mind, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, this holy and pleasing to him, this is your spiritual act of worship. That is what worship is. And yes, singing is worship, absolutely. But worship is, in view of God's mercy, keeping his mercies in our view, seeing how ridiculously good he has been to us, in view of that saying, God, I'm all yours. All of this is yours. I, all of this I give to you for your worship, to point people to you. That's what worship is. That's what it means to to glorify God in all things. To say, in view of your mercy, God, everything I do, my eating, my drinking, my rest, my work, my thought life, my family life, how I spend my free time, all of this is for your glory. John Piper, um, pastor in America, says this, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. This is what it means for a Christian to magnify God. You can't magnify what you have not seen. You can't magnify what you quickly forget. So let me urge you, feast on the goodness of God. Taste and see that he is good. And as you, as you do that, as you taste and see that he is good, as you feast on him, as you become an expert in how good he is, your life will bubble over with worship. It will bubble over with praise to him.
Let's just maybe lift our hands to him as a way of just declaring, God, it's all for you. I want to thank you, Father, that we have tasted of your goodness. I want to thank you, God, you have been so good to us. You've been so kind to us as we've sung this morning. Kindness that we didn't deserve. Lord, you've come after us and we didn't deserve it. You've shown us your goodness. You are so good, Lord. Thank you that we have been delighted in by you. We were adopted children of a heavenly father. Thank you we've been given the Holy Spirit to awaken us and to give us good things. Thank you, Lord, that we've been completely wrapped up in Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ now, given all that he's been deserved. He's all, that, all that Jesus deserves, we've been given. Thank you, we're co-heirs with him. Thank you, we have perfect access to you, Father. Thank you so much. We love you, Lord. We worship you. In view of your mercy afresh, we say today, have it all, Lord. In view of your mercy, we say, we are all yours. Just say that to him, maybe out loud. Let's not hold back here, folks. Let's just say, God, in view of your mercy, I am giving myself afresh to you. With your mercies firmly in my view, I'm saying, God, it's all yours, everything I have. Lord, my time, my energy, my money, my body, all of the instruments of my hands, it's all yours, Lord. It's all yours. You're worthy of it all, Lord. Be glorified in all that we do, in our eating and our drinking. Be glorified. Help us to remember that you alone satisfy. We love you, Lord. Feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.